example. I've got a question. I'm going to start with a question. Actually, it's kind of more of a, I don't know if it is an actual real literal question or if it's kind of like a preposition that has a question at the end of it. It assumes something, then it asks you a question. If you're in English, you probably understand that. But here it is. Have you ever thought about the fact that according to the Bible, that uh, 10 billion years from now, uh, the world will not have ended because of climate change, as concerning uh, as that is, and we've been praying this morning because of the floods and all kinds of crazy weather that's lashing our country this morning, nor will the world have ended because of a zombie apocalypse, although there's something deep within me that would really love uh, to be a part of some kind of action like that. Um, or nor will it have ended because of a, some sort of biological thing or nuclear apocalypse or even the audible orbital, you know, planets moving around, instabilities of our solar system, or the fact that the sun runs out of power, starts to become a red giant and sucks us all into the middle of it. But rather, 10 million years from now, it will be completely, perfectly, and permanently restored. All things without frustration, all things without decay, all things without disorder. And the quality of our eternity on this little blue planet will be tethered to how we answer the question, who is Jesus? It's the most important question any of us will ever face. Most important question to answer, whether we want to admit that or not. It's the most important question because of the claims that Jesus made about himself because of the claims that the Bible has to say about Jesus. The importance of Jesus cannot be ignored either. It it can be seen in the fact that, uh, you've all heard this before, the fact that human history is divided by his birth. You all got out of bed this morning, uh, looked at your iPhone or your Android if you're a nonconformist, and it let you know that it was 5.30 in the morning, 23rd of October, 2022. 2022 years since the birth of Jesus. We remove that timestamp from history, and history goes from being teleological, that is, on a trajectory with a purpose and meaning, to just being cyclomatic and meaningless, just the rise and fall of ideas and empires as they just cycle along into who knows what. Our biggest holiday of the year, which is coming up, Christmas, began, at least originally, to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the ultimate gift for needy people. On the flip side of that, the cross, an instrument of sadistic brutality, has become a universal symbol of hope, adorning graves, being fashioned into jewellery, appearing on T-shirts... Tattoos because of Jesus' death, his birth and his death, coloring history, coloring art, coloring fashion. Jesus himself never led an army. He never composed a great literary work, never had it turned into a TV series. He never rose up in any political or religious ranks. In fact, his whole adult life, he never saw anything ever further than a couple of hundred kilometers from his home. His whole entire life could have been fitted inside Tasmania, apart from a couple of years as a refugee, as a child in Egypt. His followers, too, were mostly not powerful people, not influential people, not wealthy people, not educated or impressive people, and far from perfect people. But the way they lived, 
following out what they encountered in Jesus, the deep convictions and transformation of their heart changed the world forever. The impact of Jesus on these people and history can be seen in the advancement of the rights of children and women. No figure in human history has so rapidly and so permanently transformed the place and the dignity of children and women in society. Out of the life of Jesus, we find care for the sick, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the poor, the uneducated. They become a social priority, not a social inconvenience. Hospitals, schools, all uh, have classes and facilities for people of all classes. Until Jesus, you have no foundation for grace as a plausible way to behave. It's just fool. The word, the concept didn't exist. Until Jesus, no foundation, uh, no historic account of, of unconditional love, not as utterly foolish. No historic beginning of a community that would consider itself or have at the center to be inclusive, to be inclusive to people regardless of uh, gender, stature, social standing, education, even football allegiance. Like we let you in here if you're a Collingwood supporter. That's cool. Carlton supporter. You need to understand that before Jesus, it's not that these inclusive communities, I just saw a Collingwood supporter going, oh, the grace. It's not that these inclusive communities didn't exist or were trying to be shaped or trying to work themselves out. It's that the idea didn't exist. Jesus started the idea of equality and inclusivity of people. So Paul writes that there are no walls of hostilities, no divisions based on gender and class and race. Jesus is a person in whom natural born enemies become brothers and sisters. As the Christmas carol goes, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, just tearing itself apart till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. But without doubt, the most incredible claim of or about Jesus is that as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he became human. As we read this morning from John's Gospel, and the Word, that is the divine, eternal existence of the Son, became flesh, human, and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We are in a series at the moment where each Sunday we are looking at one of our nine statements of faith, nine little condensations of what we and what pretty much all biblically orthodox Christians hold as core of our faith. Things that we unite around in worship and practice and hope. And today we are looking at this third statement of faith. You don't have a PowerPoint because my laptop failed me this morning. Uh, which we affirm the biblical witness of the deity and incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And in brackets, because we need further explanation, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, was born of a virgin, is both fully God and fully human. 
This is the claim of all the gospel writers. And indeed, this becomes the basis for the good news of salvation and the dealing with the human condition of sin throughout the whole of the New Testament. But it is not an invention of the New Testament, as some have tried to claim, but rather in what theologians call the incarnation, the adding of humanity to his divinity, Jesus fulfills all that the Old Testament forecast all that the old testament uh, promised that god would do in order to repair the relationship that humanity had destroyed between us and our creator god like the trinity as we saw last week the hints and the evidence for the incarnation is consistent and increasing throughout the old testament the promise con- is consistent and increasing uh, from genesis three fifteen. Right out of the gate where God says that a future descendant will be born to a woman who will put an end permanently to the chaos that sin has brought into the world, into human life, into all relationships. From that point, it travels. It resurfaces um, in, in the story of Abraham, in the calling of Abraham, in who the promise of a seed continues. We read about that in Genesis 12 to 17, and Paul references it back in Galatians. And then in Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7, when God begins to give more imagery, more concrete imagery around what this person will be, like the roles, the functions and that, he says that he will be an eternal king, that he'll be one who sits on the throne of King David but he'll do it eternally. Then in Isaiah, uh, we hear from Isaiah in Isaiah 7 and in Isaiah 9, that the uniqueness uh, of the uniqueness and the greatness of the supernaturalness. And we also hear of the the humility of this person. It's conveyed in what Isaiah says, that he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And And as Emmanuel, he will also be a child, a baby, conceived, born to a virgin. This child to come, this person, is described in ways way beyond any merely human ruler or person could possibly be. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, in whom the increase of peace, uh, in whom the increase of the peace of their rule will have no end. That is what Matthew refers to at the birth of Jesus. Here is Emmanuel, here is the baby, the child born, God with us, who Matthew has at the end of a family tree that includes both David and Abraham. The story rolls through. Amazingly, uh, what the Bible tells us is even though God is completely uh, distinct and fully separate from the whole of creation he has made, God in Jesus' incarnation is also God with us, Emmanuel. Bruce Ware puts it like this. He just comments on this. He says not, that not only is God far off, vast and mighty, big and full of good things, but, he's also, but he also is a God who has chosen to come near to us, live with us, to make himself known to us and to provide in that all that we truly need. That's why Isaiah describes this person not just in majestic and divine uh, terms, but profoundly humble in human terms, a suffering servant who could actually be beaten, humiliated, and killed. 
But this suffering is not the suffering of a victim of humanity, humanity's sinfulness. Oh my goodness. But it's planned. It's planned atonement. The suffering of this servant is effective. It changes realities between God and humanity, bringing peace where there was enmity, bringing peace where there is war between the two. So while this servant is profoundly human, there is also supernaturalness in what they achieve. It changes spiritual conditions of people. It reverses the effects of sin, healing our wounds, Isaiah says. This suffering is substitutionary. It works on behalf of those who the servant identifies with and who identify with the servant. The servant bears the sins of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. This is no ordinary death being described by Isaiah. It is efficacious. It is a death that achieves life for others because it is not merely a man, a servant who dies, but a perfect man. Who, as Peter writes in reference to Isaiah about Jesus, had committed no sin. And there was no deceit found in his mouth. Peter understands that though Jesus is fully God, he is also fully human. Finally, the prophet Micah describes the birthplace of this promised king, this promised person who would rule God's people in Micah 5 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, for God, one who is to be a ruler of Israel, of God's people, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This prophecy, this promise is fulfilled in Luke 2, 1-17. Wise men, pagan astrologers, turn up in Jerusalem and they worship a baby who they say is born a king, not will become a king, but is a particular king at his birth. And when they find Jesus there with great joy, they, they worship him. They worship this child and they lay gifts at his feet. Carson, Don Carson says in these verses here, Micah reveals that the incarnation of Jesus was the entrance of the eternal God. And the response of the wise men confirm it. The incarnation is forecast and promised in the Old Testament. It is announced and evidenced in the Gospels, and it is the basis of hope and practice for the rest of the New Testament. Jesus the baby, Jesus the man, is also eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, which again is why John writes, as we read this morning, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. William Bokestein, a uh, great name, but even more awesome. Uh, he is a pastor at a church in Kalamazoo. Like if you were going to be a pastor somewhere, Kalamazoo. Anyway, I found it interesting. He says this, until we grasp that Christ is God in the flesh, the Old Testament will remain just a collection of stories about how men and women struggle with a call to faith. The incarnation helps us to see that the Old Testament sets the stage for God to once again live with man as he did in Eden. On every Old Testament page, God promises a human deliverer who is stronger than Satan, 
both a suffering servant and an anointed king. And we have seen that as we've been going through Luke. Remember when we got to that point where we, Jesus talked about the strong man, the strong man who would come into this world and bind up the ruler of this world, overpower him. The reality of God with us is explained and applied throughout the rest of Scripture, the New Testament, beginning with Matthew. The New Testament is not simply a collection itself of ethical instructions or even a commentary on a certain Nazarene. It is a real-life story of what happened when God came to men that they might belong to him. The New Testament is the answer to the Old Testament It's anticipation of a redeemer. Only in the incarnate Christ, only in Jesus, are all the promises of the Old Testament answered, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, with a resounding yes. J.I. Packer points out, if Jesus was no more than a remarkable man, who impacted history merely at a sociological level, then all the other hard-to-believe aspects of the Christian faith remain hard, if not impossible to believe. But if Jesus was, is the eternal word, then it is no wonder if fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. So don't be surprised if it's miraculous. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. So if this, is, if this person really is God, then these miraculous things attached to him are not surprises. The miracle, the virgin birth, the resurrection, all flow from a belief that the baby in the manger was the God-man, that Jesus really was God in the flesh. For how can God put away the sins of the world through the death of one man on a Roman cross? Yet if Jesus was, is God in the flesh, he is able to remove the sins of the world by dying a sinner's death through himself, through, though he himself was sinless. The incarnation itself is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else we read in the New Testament, Packer says. Jesus had to be truly human. He had to be human in order to suffer and to sympathize that in his human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the conclusion the writer of Hebrews comes to in Hebrews 4. That we have a God who knows what it's like to be one of us, to be truly human. But as Peter points out, that never sinned as we did. And Jesus had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure our, our salvation. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. This is the conclusion that Paul comes to as he writes the letter of Romans. When God became a man, he was not God minus some attributes. Instead, when the Apostle Paul speaks about God the Son emptying himself and becoming poor, what he has in mind is not the laying aside of his divine powers or his divine attributes, but of his divine glory and his divine dignity. What we see in the pages of the gospel is not Jesus lacking divine power and knowledge, but Jesus 
God the Son restraining his divine capacities. In the exercise of his uh, mediating office, in the exercise of identifying coming to us, Jesus is utterly purposeful, intent to carry out the will of the Father, nothing more and nothing less. That's why you see Jesus using his divine powers to reverse and overcome the effects of sin in others, to demonstrate that he is God in the flesh, but he never uses his divine attributes to withstand the assault of sin, uh, the temptations of sin in his own life. Jesus always does that in his humanity. That's why we hear him saying, you know, the word of God says, or we see him going to prayer. He uses the same resources that you use to overcome sin but he just does it perfectly in the power of the word in the power of the spirit this means that jesus as both god and man is one person of two separate and distinct natures firstly in the person of jesus is the distinct and complete nature of god The Bible teaches that Jesus is not merely someone who is a lot like God or someone who has a very close walk with God. Rather, Jesus is the most high God himself. That's what is found in Titus 2.3. says that as Christians, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then we hear Thomas When Thomas encounters the risen Lord Jesus, he cries out, my Lord and my God. This is the biblical witness to the deity of Jesus. And writer of Hebrews gives us God, the Father's direct testimony about Christ, quoting Psalm 44. But but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. Another way that the Bible teaches it, Jesus is God by showing us that he has all the attributes of God. He knows everything. Read about that in Matthew and Luke and John. He has all power. He's all powerful. Again, we've been seeing that as we go through the gospel of Luke. Power over the spirits, power over nature, power over all things. That Jesus depends on nothing outside of himself. We read that this morning on John 4. He rules over everything. You can read about that in Matthew 28, Revelation 1, 5. He, he never began to exist and he will never cease to exist. Again in our reading this morning in 1 John 1. And he is our creator. Read that in Colossians 1, 16. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is. For Jesus is God. As we read this morning, this is because the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who John calls the Word, became flesh and he added to his divinity, humanity, identifying with us in every way. Which also means that Jesus is not just God, but he is fully human. He has a human nature. He has a divine nature. He has a human nature. Everything that belongs to the essence of humanity is true of him. He is just as truly human as you and I. The fact that Jesus is truly human, or fully human, is clear from the fact that he has a human body. Luke talks about his resurrected body in Luke 24. He has a human mind. You know, we, we read in Luke that he grew in thinking and stature. He has a human soul, Matthew 26. 
Jesus does not just look like a man. He does not just have some aspects of what is essential for true humanity and not others. Rather, he possesses full humanity. Jesus gets thirsty. He gets tired. He has to take a nap. He has to eat. And of course, he can be killed. And he has been this way from the moment of his conception. And he will be this way for all eternity. The Bible is clear that Jesus rose physically from the dead in the same body. That's Thomas. Thomas looks at him. Show me the, show me the holes in your hands and the spear in your side. This is a physical, corporate, corporal body. He ascended to heaven as a man in a physical body. You read about that in Acts 1 and Luke 24. Things that kind of make no sense and or, or are misleading if Jesus just gets to heaven and ditches his body. And Paul tells us in Philippians 3.21 that when Jesus returns, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with his body of glory. This verse is clear that Jesus still has a body. Both Jesus and all Christians will continue to live together in their bodies forever, 10 billion years from now, because resurrected bodies cannot die. Each of these two natures remain distinct and retain their own properties. The human nature and the divine nature, they do not diminish nor do they mix or alter each other into some sort of hybrid mysterious creature like pouring ink into water because this would mean that Jesus is no longer fully God and fully human but something entirely different. Rather, each nature remains distinct and thereby retains its own individual properties and it does not change. While Jesus has two distinct eternal natures, he remains one person. There is only one Christ. And in spite of the fact he has a duality of natures, he is not two Christs but one, while remaining distinct. The two natures are united together in such a way so as we see Jesus as one person. That's why Jesus says, I am, not we am. To put it simply, there is, a, there is in a certain sense in which Christ is two and in a different sense in which Christ is one. He is two in that he has two real full natures, one divine and one human. He is one in that while remaining distinct, these two natures exist together in such a way as they constitute one thing, one person. In other words, the two natures are both the same Jesus and thus one person. What this means in simple terms, you like simple terms? Are you kidding me? I feel like I just read the dictionary. Is that, there, is that if there is something that only one of Christ's natures did, he can still say, I did it. For example, while God cannot die, the divinity of Jesus can't die, his divine nature can't die, Jesus in his human nature can. So Jesus, the Son of God, can say, I have tasted death. Equally amazing to the doctrine, or equally hard to understand, is the doctrine of the Trinity, is the doctrine of the Incarnation. That Jesus Christ is God and man, yet one person forever. J.R. Packer has said, here are two mysteries for the price of one. 
the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And I know your brains are melting down. Don't panic. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but Glennis has uh, condensed some of last week's sermon into some dot points and stuff that's a little bit more easy to digest. And we'll do it again this week, perhaps. And it's going on to OneDrive. But, but here's what the incarnation means for you and I at a street level. It means this, that God is accessible. In the Old Testament, God, God was only accessible through the mediation of prophets and priests and a tabernacle and temple. There, there was distance between people and God and only particular special ways where God could be in relationship with people. No Israelite could properly see God. That's what John tells us at the end of that verse, if we kept reading to 18. Calvin, John Calvin says, the revelation of God prior to Christ is like a, a, a pencil sketch. We just kind of have an outline of, of what God's like. In Christ, though, God becomes accessible to us in the most familiar form. Like one of us, six times in the opening of his letter, John writes later on in the New Testament that he says, we saw him, we touched him, we spoke with him. During Jesus' earthly ministry, the majestic God of heaven and earth cries out to crowds, come to me, come to me, know me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And find peace. Come and know me. Come and know peace. If you want to know what God is like, then study the person of Jesus. Study Christ. As Richard Phillips has written, Jesus' earthly posture, tone of voice, attitude, uh, reaction to events were those of God. God is Christ-like. In Jesus, God both approached us and we became able to approach him. It means, too, that we have a sympathetic mediator, someone who, 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 who operates on our behalf between us and God. At Mount Sinai, Israel needed a mediation. Uh, they were just simply terrified of God's thunderings. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we're going to die. It's Deuteronomy 5. So he gave them Moses as a temporary mediator. But he said to his people, they are to look for a better one. This is who the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is. He is a better mediator, a better high priest. And Paul later wrote that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, Jesus. In his humanity, Christ suffered our judgment for sin. Only one who is truly human can die in the place of sinful humans. The great work of atonement is only possible because he is truly human. This is God. This is Jesus mediating for us uh, between us and God. In his divinity, he endured the judgment to the very end so that we can approach a holy God through faith in Jesus. You can't and you don't have to and nor should you ever try to earn your salvation. Jesus has mediated it. This is the point. 
It has always been and it always will be the gracious work of Jesus to bring us back into a right relationship with God. This is desperately important. It's not about your greatness, but it is totally about Jesus' goodness and greatness as the Son of God and Son of Man. So take a breath and understand that God has mediated your rescue, has done everything that you need to do to be reconciled back to him in the God-man Jesus. Furthermore, the writer of Hebrews tells us that because Jesus has come from God, has lived a sinful, fully human life, not only has he mediated for us this reconciliation, but he sympathizes with us. And not in some vague memory, but in his current humanity, Jesus is mindful of the limitations and the weaknesses that we have. You have a God who is desperately personal to whom you can say, this life is hard. This being a Christian is tough and it's lonely at times. And he can say, yes, it is. But take heart, I have overcome this world. Let me share with you my current joy. Let me share with you my current hope, my current promises. Finally, it compels us to to live godly lives. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, for the love of Christ compels us. Those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In the incarnation, we see the full scope of God's love and desire for us, that he would become like us so that we might become like him. It's the great exchange. Jesus is not just a great and significant person who impacted human history. He is the son of God who transforms hearts and making new people out of old. People who will be in 10 billion years time now, from now, still knowing, still loving, still worshipping Jesus as their Lord and Saviour for their deep joy and their deep satisfaction and for his infinite glory. Let's pray. Loving God, again, a lot of, lot of information as we try and get our heads around this concept of the incarnation, this incredible mystery that J.I. Packer calls it. And as we sit and as we think about the fact, the simple fact that God chose to come and identify and move into this broken world, to not leave it alone not leave it wandering around by itself, but come to reveal himself and said, the way out of this mess is me. The way into fullness of life is me. And all that's broken it and all that's unraveled it, I'm going to put back together again, but I will do it at the cost of my own life and not yours. A simple, beautiful message from a loving, humble God who says in the incarnation, I serve you 
you don't serve me. Amen.